Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. WQAD Podcast Network. The Cities with Jim Mertens, a production of WQPT, PBS for the Quad Cities region, a podcast in partnership with WQAD. What's going on in the Quad Cities? Activities, events, fun, politics, sports, local issues and opinions. And now, your host, Jim Mertens. I'm Jim Mertens, and this is the Cities Podcast. It's only been found in fewer than 10 flocks as of the beginning of April, but more than 6 million birds have been destroyed because of what's called HPAI, Highly Pathogenic Avian Influenza. It's been found in birds in four western Illinois counties, but it is insidious because it can travel so easily and so quickly, even by migratory birds that are just passing through. We talked with Iowa's Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag about this, but we also talked about the impact on farmers from the war in Ukraine, as well as the future of farming. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for joining us. Let's talk about avian flu first. Why is this such a serious situation for state agriculture? Well, good to be with you. And, and you know, a foreign animal disease, and those are specific diseases that have uh, trade implications to them. So things like high path avian influenza, African swine fever, foot and mouth disease. These are things that if you have them in your country, they typically impact trade with other parts of the world. In addition, they are devastating to the producers, to the farm families and businesses that that uh, raise that livestock. And so it is uh, an economic impact. It's certainly an impact uh, to those families. And so well, when we look at a foreign animal disease, we're always thinking about how can we identify uh, affected sites early and how can we act quickly to uh, isolate the virus and contain it and hopefully prevent the spread. We last had high path in the state of Iowa in 2015 and uh, we had a significant outbreak that year and we learned a lot. We improved our plans. We have exercised our plans for the last several years. My team is ready to go. It's a hard situation, but we're, we're executing on our plans. Well, and we're talking some 6 million uh, poultry have already been put down. And you put that into perspective that, in a way, it's almost twice the human population of Iowa. I mean, this is really significant, even though Iowa has such a ginormous uh, poultry flock compared to other states. Yeah, we do. We're a, we're a leading egg producer. We're the number one egg producing state in the nation. We're number seven in Turkey, and we actually have a growing uh, a broiler chicken uh, uh, production uh, sector, in especially in western and southwestern Iowa. So uh, it, it is a big number. However, uh, that number, we only have six confirmed sites as of now and uh, four commercial sites. So two laying facilities, egg producing facilities, and two turkey facilities, and then two backyard flocks. And that's an important thing to remember that this can affect uh, the very large producers, and it can also affect somebody with only a few chickens, a few birds in their backyard. And so uh, it's important for everyone to be watching for those signs of avian influenza. Call the Iowa Department of Agriculture if you have any suspicion that your birds are being impacted and we can help uh, arrange the testing to confirm that. 
Iowa's taking emergency action in regards to this, and one of the things is that you are prohibiting uh, uh, sales, uh, displays of, of poultry, even at uh, county fair levels, for the next 30 days, though. And as you know, a lot of the county fairs start after the next 30 right. days. So are you pretty confident that county fairs will be able to have poultry exhibitions and judging, or, or is it just too early to tell? It really is too early to tell from the sense that, uh, you know, we know that the, the virus is being carried by the wild bird population. So as birds are migrating north all throughout the spring, they are appearing to be carrying the virus with them. And that's where we're seeing these introductions, wild birds and domestic birds interacting. And so really we have to look ahead and think all throughout the, the spring season as birds are moving north, uh, this remains a significant threat. But what we did is we said, you know, in, in order to protect birds, again, of, of flocks of all sizes, that it's important to prohibit uh, these live exhibitions, these, these uh, shows, uh, and, and we're gonna do that for at least 30 days, and then we're gonna reset the clock every time we have a confirmed case. So we'll go 30 days past the last confirmed case in the state of Iowa is when we would expect to be able to start having shows again. So I'm really hopeful that we can, in fact, have those shows at county fairs but only time will tell and, and we certainly hope. And that's why we're acting quickly to identify and contain this virus uh, to try to prevent the spread. Well, the real problem, like you said, is migratory birds can just you know, continue the process of spreading uh, right. avian flu. So do you believe in realistic terms that the situation might get worse before it gets better? You know, unfortunately that, that could be the case. Uh, what we've seen, and if you, you, you look across the country, this started on the East Coast and it's been moving into the Mississippi Flyway. And, and again, it continues to be, with very few exceptions, that these are independent uh, uh, wild bird introductions that are kind of sporadic as you look at the map. And uh, what we are really trying to prevent is that spread between farms, between buildings. And uh, that's why it's important to act quickly. So again, time will tell. It really has a lot to do with the weather and uh, how, how quickly does it warm up and how quickly do those birds move on uh, to uh, further north. And, and those are all the types of dynamics that we're looking at. But I, I wanna stress this too, the industry, the producers, the farmers are, are doing, and they've made a lot of improvements to their biosecurity. We meaning try to keep what's outside outside and what's inside inside and prevent uh, the connection of the two. And that that's the most important thing, the best line of defense that we have, again, whether big or small, is to uh, watch that biosecurity. We talked to one farmer who says this is like the third time they've gone through some type of outbreak in Iowa. Is, is this something that is becoming more common? You know, it, it, foreign animal diseases are always a risk. Uh, it's always a threat. And that's why it's important to always be, it, have a mindset of preparedness and to be always be trying to prevent uh, Bio, you know, prevent the spread and always be focused on biosecurity. I wouldn't say it's happening more, uh, but it's true that HiPath has been around uh, last in Iowa in 15, but it's been in other parts of the country since then. And of course, we also think a lot about African swine fever, which is now in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. So it's in the Western hemisphere for the first time since 1980. So our pork producers are also thinking about biosecurity and, and keeping that disease out of the country and off of their farms. Well, and, and the, the hog farmers already had faced some serious issues in the last few years. You don't want to see that uh, particular area of the agriculture industry impacted as well. 
That's right. And, you know, livestock producers are dealing with disease on a daily basis. Uh, it's something that's the reality of production. But these specific diseases, again, African swine fever, uh, foot and mouth disease, high path, these are things that are that are additional, that, that ca cause those trade disruptions and are are very, very devastating. So they are a different class of, uh, of diseases that folks are really needing to be uh, vigilant in their biosecurity. And we then are also working with USDA on the response side of things. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine. It is having a huge impact worldwide. Of course, you know, European countries depend so much more on uh, exports or imports to uh, or exports from Ukraine into their countries. But what is the impact you're seeing of the Ukraine war in Iowa impacting farmers? Well, and it may surprise folks to know that there is an impact, right? But remember that agriculture is, it's a global, it's a global supply chain. And so one, we, uh, we rely on export markets. Iowa is number two in the United States in terms of the value of our food and agriculture exports. We're second only to California. So when global trade is disrupted, uh, that certainly impacts us. When trade is working well, that, that benefits us. But we also rely on other countries and other markets for the inputs that we need, the crop protection tools, the, the fertilizer that's important to uh, crop production. And so we are definitely being impacted by both that inflow of fertilizer in particular, but also Ukraine is a significant grain producer and corn exporter in particular. And it's, a, it's an absolute human tragedy what's happening with Russia invading uh, and being so destructive in, in the Ukraine. And my thoughts and prayers are with everyone involved in this. And I hope for a resolution to this, but it is absolutely impacting the agriculture supply chain broadly. And for a long period of time, I mean, the, the devastation, you, you think of a war going on in a country in rural areas, there could be shrapnel in the field. There could be, you know, an unexploded ordnance in the field, d besides even tanks driving over your, your wheat, your corn crops in Ukraine. Right. You know, even if the war were to end tomorrow, agriculture would suffer for months on end. There, there's a lot of analysis being done right now on one, so it's a wheat producing region, and so you've got the winter wheat crop that's coming. And, uh, you know, can they get another uh, application of fertilizer on that crop before they harvest? Will they even have the equipment or the fuel to harvest that wheat crop? And then, of course, for corn production, similar climate, similar uh, time frame to get a crop in the ground as we do here in the in the corn belt of the United States. And, and again, if you've got the seed and the fertilizer that you need, do you have the fuel? Do you have the equipment? And, and frankly, is there safety and security that you can even get to the field? So a lot of questions around how much, how productive can that region be? And then add on to that the idea that can they even export what they can harvest uh, because of the disruption? Again, it's a tragic situation. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it, it could very well cause shortages of some very important commodities around the world. In Iowa, we're seeing some tax changes, as you well know, the, the flat tax perhaps coming, well, coming next year. A lot of people have yep. talked about that, of course. A lot of people talk about the retirement tax uh, that is uh, uh, eliminated in Iowa effective immediately. Not a lot of people have talked about tax changes that are going to impact farmers. Uh, tell me a little bit about what's changing and how farmers should be preparing for that right now. Well, look, this this tax package, it was uh, significant. It's, it's bold. Uh, it's exactly the kind of thing that we should be looking at in terms of a state that has a, a strong fin uh, financial health 
and uh, a growing economy, right? So then we can look at things like how do we be how do we become more competitive? You know, one of our greatest challenges is that from a workforce standpoint, we need more Iowans. We need more people moving to this state. We've got an opportunity for our farm farms and our families and our communities and our businesses to thrive and grow. So a simplified, a, a, a lower tax rate, those are all things that are good for Iowa's competitiveness and good for our families, regardless of whether you farm or not. And so those are important things. And of course, the retirement income and uh, exempting retirement income, especially around uh, land related or rental, uh, farm farmland rental related income, uh, that I think will also help, again, keep Iowans in Iowa and help us to be more competitive. So look, this is good for agriculture, but it's good for Iowa families and, and Iowa businesses across the board. We've talked a lot about climate change uh, this week on News 8, and, and so we've been talking about how it impacts farmers uh, with changing growing season, uh, more microbursts of rain, uh, more devastating windstorms. Um, is, is there a plan from Iowa Department of Agriculture in regards to climate change and how to better deal with the uh, severe weather that Iowa farmers and actually all farmers in the Midwest are now facing? I think the thing to think about when it comes to, to weather, and, and we are seeing larger rain events in the shoulder seasons, spring and fall. And so that's why we think about uh, things like using no-till and uh, incorporating cover crops into our operations. Trying to get cover on the ground when a crop is not growing, and you can then hold your soil in place and, and also improve water quality. Those are the types of practices that have, frankly, layers of benefits, nutrient reduction, soil erosion prevention, building soil health. Those are all important things that have many, many benefits. So uh, I, those are the types of things that we're looking at is how do we continue to build resiliency into our agriculture and particularly into our land use. But uh, I also would, would note that uh, we've got a long history in this state of innovation, right? We're, we're always trying to do it better. Every year, we're trying to uh, grow a crop more efficiently, grow uh, more yield, uh, do a better job with our livestock. And that that won't change. That that continuous improvement is something that we're focused on. And so weather, climate, and, and the changes that we uh, potentially are seeing are all part of that continuing to think about resiliency of agriculture. We've got a lot of history of doing that. I'm confident we'll be able to adjust to the future as well. I think it's interesting that you did point out the uh, high-tech changes that are going on, of course, uh, throughout the industry, and that includes, of course, John Deere. Deere having that huge plant in Waterloo based, of course, in the Quad Cities, Mr. Secretary. You, I'm telling you nothing that you don't already know. Right. What is kind of exciting is Deere has introduced that driverless uh, tractor, uh, and you're talking about high-tech. It was interesting, I was listening to a discussion on one of the business channels that they were saying that this could really be revolutionary for farming. Well, this is one of the best parts about agriculture is the, the constant change. We always say the only the only thing that's constant in agriculture is change. And so, uh, again, we know that efficiency and uh, especially around trying to accommodate for some of our workforce challenges, you know, autonomous vehicles, digital agriculture, uh, precision agriculture. And that's not just in the cropping space, but also in livestock and in processing. These are tremendous opportunities and it, it takes you know, I mentioned too that the last growing season, we had significant drought across the state of Iowa, and yet we set records in the state of Iowa for our corn and soybean yields. Uh, that's not an accident. That happens because of innovation. That happens because of 
how we manage the crop, how it's planted, how it's fed, how it's cared for. And, uh, and that's a special thing. And that's something we shouldn't take for granted. Uh, innovation is a key component to our, our success into the future. The equipment piece of it is just one of those things that's really exciting. Iowa Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag. Thanks for listening to The Cities with Jim Mertens. And watch The Cities Thursday nights at 7, Sunday afternoon at 4, and Monday night at 6 on WQPT, PBS for the Quad Cities region. WQAD Podcast Network.